Okay, did you know that many years ago, Christmas had become so rowdy and so immoral that the British Parliament actually outlawed its observance? It was against the law to have Christmas. The true significance had become lost in the maze of revelry, drunkenness, and depravity. In fact, in 1644, the Parliament actually made a law, a series of, gave a series of laws, in fact, prohibiting anyone from celebrating Christmas in any way whatsoever because it becomes so immoral and so degrading to the community. Some people say perhaps we should have those laws again. But that's one aspect of the human dimension of Christmas. People respond to it differently. And we want to focus today on the proper way of remembering Christmas or celebrating Christmas. But let me tell you another story. It's a little opposite to show you how the human dimensions could change depending upon the individuals. You all, have you all heard of the Hatfield and McCoy feuds? Anybody heard of that? Right? In Kentucky, in that area where they used to fight, killing one another as family members because of a feud, and it went on for years and years and years. Well, there's another story told of another family, two families. They were living side by side in the mountains of Kentucky. And they had been fighting and quarreling for years. They don't know why, but they were. But in this case, it started when, well, I'll show you what some of the children said how it started. It says the feud started when Grandfather Smith's cow jumped over the stone fence of Grandfather Brown and ate his corn. Brown shot the cow. Then one of the Smith boys shot one of the Brown boys. In fact, he shot two of them, while the Brown boys shot only one Smith. Bill, one of the oldest of the Brown family, decided that he would even up matters no matter what, especially since it was his father who was shot. But before he could do anything, Bill was called away to the war. He was drafted before he could take vengeance. While he was away, his mother had a hard time providing for the family because the breadwinner, of course, was dead. One Christmas, the head of the Smith family took his wife and children to church. Usually he would stay outside, but it was so cold this time, he decided to go in and wait for his family in the church. Sometimes we hope it gets cold enough for that to happen here. He sat down and listened to the sermon. The sermon was on Christ, the Prince of Peace, who was born on the first Christmas. And the pastor told the story of the fact that Jesus Christ came. His name was Emmanuel, God with us. He was named Jesus because he would take away the sins of his people. The story of Christmas stuck in good ground, found good ground in his heart. And on the way home, he passed the home of the Browns. And he realized what a crime he had done in killing the breadwinner of that family. He prayed for forgiveness, but he did not stop there. He did more than pray. He determined to help this family in a secret way. And so he hired a small boy to carry a basket of food to the Browns' household every day. Now, when Bill came home 
from the war a few years later and heard of this ongoing kindness by this unknown stranger, he decided to find out who this generous person was. And so he followed the little boy who dropped the food at the door, and he followed it home to the Smith's home next door. He couldn't believe his eyes. So he went to the door and knocked. And when Smith answered his knock, he smiled and said, Shoot me, Bill, if you want to. But Bill said he had come to thank him for taking care of his family while he was gone. He then explained to Bill how he had come to change his heart in such a fashion. He said he had heard the story of the first Christmas, the story of the Prince of Peace who came to give his life for us, those who did not love him. He said that story changed his life. Now you see, that is another human dimension to responding to the Christmas story. In one case, we have the revelry. In the other, we have one of praise, thanksgiving, self-sacrifice because of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So in the first story then, we have an example of the wrong emphasis of Christmas, losing sight of the significance of Christmas. In the second, we have a portrayal of the true essence of Christmas and what the birth of Christ is to bring about in the lives of individuals. It shows what happens when the divine and human dimensions impact upon each other. Now this morning we want to talk about the human dimension a little bit more, and next time, Lord willing, we talk about the divine dimension of Christmas. Christ, after all, was born among human beings. He was born among people like you and me. He was born into this world of sin, and that birth impacted individuals. It was meant, in fact, to impact individuals. And so this morning, we want to look at some of the individuals who were involved in and impacted upon by the birth of Jesus Christ during that first Christmas and how they responded because of that involvement and impact with the prayer that the lessons we have from the scriptures might help us to respond in a positive way in remembering Christ this year. So let's look first of all then at the human dimension of Christmas as seen in the response of Zechariah to the announcement of the birth of Christ. The story is told in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 to 23. Verse 16 says, He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord, speaking of John, and in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah's own interests overshadowed the major emphasis of the angel's message. The angel actually was emphasizing the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John, being the forerunner, was secondary to that. But Zechariah, because of his own personal interest, overlooked the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and only focused on the fact that perhaps he and his wife, aged as they were, would have children. So he allowed his own personal interest to overshadow, to lose sight of the true reason for the season, as we say. Remember, Zechariah was a priest. And he was inside the holy place 
ministering in behalf of his people. And this was quite a thing for him because this only happened once in the life of many of the priests. They only had one opportunity. They drew lots. They didn't gamble. Now, we had a long piece in the paper recently about casting lots in the Bible is gambling. That is not true. You're just making a decision one way or the other. But in this case, uh, they would draw lots to see who would be the priests who would go into the Holy of Holies to serve. And as I said, for many priests, this only happened once in a lifetime. So this announcement came to Zechariah at a very significant point in his life. The angel announced to him that his wife would bear him a son. He would be the forerunner of the long-promised Messiah. Now again, I want to emphasize, it's important to understand that the major emphasis in this announcement was not really the birth of John the baptizer, but really it was the coming of the Messiah. But you see, the birth of John reflected a personal interest of Zechariah and his wife. And what happened here was that their own interest overshadowed the major emphasis of the angelic message to him at that time. Now, it is very clearly stated in verse 16. If you look in your Bibles in Luke, you say, Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. Speaking, of course, of John. Verse 17. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Notice, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In other words, John was going to cause a conversion of a remnant of believers to turn to the Messiah to prepare them for his coming. And his coming was the primary focus of this announcement by the angels. But the emphasis, as far as Zechariah was concerned, was not on the Messiah, but on his son, who would be called John. But because of his own personal concern, he focused on the wrong thing. Now notice the result of this in verses 18 and 19. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. In other words, how can I know that you are telling me the truth? How can I know that you are telling me the truth? You see, notice this now. This is the important part. We forget this sometimes. If Zechariah had believed what the angel had told him about the coming of Christ, he would have been the first human being to announce the coming of Christ. He would be the first human being to announce Christmas is coming if he had focused on the message that the angel had given him, the primary part of that message. But because of his own selfish concern, he lost sight of the primary message and focused on the secondary part of it. So because of personal concerns, he responded to God's revelation in unbelief, and he lost that once-in-a-lifetime privilege of being the one who would proclaim the coming of the Messiah to tell the world that Christmas is coming. So we have a personal application here if we want it. Let me ask you, what is your primary concern this Christmas? What are you planning for? Are you really planning to commemorate or remember Jesus Christ, to celebrate him? Or are you planning on being engaged in activities that Jesus Christ came to save you from? Isn't that amazing? So many people are involved in doing the very things that Christ came to save them from, saying that they are celebrating his coming. 
You see, they lose sight of the real reason for the coming of Christ. To take away our sins, to save us from our sins. But yet, we are prone to be involved in all kinds of sins like selfishness, pride, greed during this period of time. And also, you know, and that's why I'm so glad that we had so many people respond to the giving out of the food. This is a time for giving, giving to those who cannot give back, giving to those who really have a need. That's what Jesus Christ did, and that's what he wants us to do as well. And so you will indicate what you believe is the primary focus of Christmas by the way you celebrate it. Where you go, who you go with, what you do. You're going to reveal, you're going to demonstrate what you're really what you are really focusing on this Christmas by what you do and where you go and who you associate with during this time. Make sure then that you don't miss a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity of doing what you know God wants you to do. Now you might be here today and you've never received Jesus Christ yet. He was the first Christmas gift, but you're sitting here wondering what am I going to get for Christmas? What's my Christmas gift? Well, listen, you could overlook the most significant Christmas gift in your life if you overlook Jesus Christ. And so right now, this morning, I say, yes, Christmas is coming. Christ has already come. But he wants you to receive him right now as the first Christmas gift. So I'm going to ask you right now in your heart where you're seated, right now where you are seated, if you have never received Jesus Christ, the first Christmas gift, will you do that right now? Just take a few moments. I want you to bow your head. All of us, please. Those of you who are believers, who have accepted Christ, pray that those who have not will do so right now. Okay? And for those of you who have not, just remember this. The Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority, to become the children of God. You do this now, and you will show God and everyone else that you are focusing on the true meaning of Christmas, and that's the fact that Jesus Christ came to take away our sins. But you receive him right now in your heart. Just say to him, Lord, I realize today that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that you came to take away sin by sacrificing yourself on Calvary's tree. And right now, today, I rely upon you, I trust you, I accept you, I receive you as my personal Savior, for no one else can save me. I trust that you've made that prayer, and if you have, as you lead today, let one of the pastors know that you've accepted Christ, or perhaps you want to talk more about receiving Christ to one of us. But now, let's look quickly at the Human dimension as seen in the life situation and response of Mary. This is also in Luke, verses 26 to 38. First, the text says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. This is very significant from a human perspective. She lived in Nazareth. Now, you need to know a little bit about Nazareth during this time in history. History tells us that either in Nazareth itself or close by was an army camp, is where the soldiers lived. So Nazareth was really known to be an immoral place. When I was going over this, it reminded me when I was a little boy, 
We had a little restaurant up East Bay Street. You know what it was called? The Dirty Spoon. Would you go to a restaurant called that? The Dirty Spoon? That was the name of our restaurant. But it was right opposite. It was right opposite uh, a big club that was then run by the numbers boss. And that place was a den of immorality. But especially when the ships came in with the sailors, oh, I mean, what was going on up there in the streets was just crazy. They say that's the kind of thing happened in Nazareth on an ongoing basis because of the uh, presence of the soldiers in the camp. This is also why, by the way, for many years, the German scholars used to say that Jesus, this is the unbelieving German scholars, believed that Jesus Christ, uh, I'm sorry, that, Ma, that Jesus was an illegitimate child and Mary uh, had for one of the soldiers of the camp. And many people were teaching that in seminaries from the Germans at that time. And even, this is reflected even in the in the in the uh, Bible. You remember when Jesus was talking to the Jews in John eight forty one, the Pharisees responding to Jesus' statement that they were doing the deeds of their father. This is Jesus told the Pharisees, "You are doing the deeds of your father, the devil." Now notice what the Pharisees said in verse forty one. We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. See, this was a slap in the face of Jesus Christ. They were implying that Jesus was an illegitimate child, born of perhaps one of these soldiers. And so Mary was living in that kind of a situation. I want, that's what I want you to get, the human dimension here. She was living in that kind of an environment. They were saying that Mary was a prostitute and that he was an illegitimate child. Now, Mary lived under a stigma of disgrace because of a response of obedience to God. She was from Nazareth. That's like saying in the New Testament times that a person was from Corinth or they were Corinthianized. To say that a person was from Corinth or to say that they were Corinthianized, or to say that they were the most immoral people that could be found anywhere. But now look at verse 26. Not only was she in this environment of immorality, it says that she was also espoused or engaged to Joseph. It says that she was a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. I want you to get the picture. Here is a young Jewish girl, probably around the age 16, if not younger, living under all the strict cultural and religious beliefs of the Jewish people of her day. In other words, we'd call her a fundamentalist today. She was an exclusive, if you want. She was carrying out everything in the letter of the law. She was engaged to Joseph, and according to custom, she had to wait a year before they were actually married. However, from the moment of their espousal or engagement, they were considered to be husband and wife on the part of the community, as though they were married. Now, the reason for this time period was purely chauvinistic. It was to give the man the assurance that his fiancée was not unfaithful to him. As far as I know, they had no way of checking up on the man. But that's how they checked up on the woman. But now look at verse 28. 
Not only was she born in this immoral environment in Nazareth, not only was she engaged and she was living under the strict Jewish law, but the scripture says she was favored by God. The passage says, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, this passage has caused certain uh, denomination, one of the largest we have here, to come up with all kinds of teachings concerning Mary. But notice very clearly, it says Mary was favored by God. Now, the word favored here in the original is, actually means bestowed grace. That's the meaning of the word favored, to be bestowed grace. So the sentence could actually read, Mary, the angel said, God has bestowed grace upon you. In other words, Mary was specifically chosen by a sovereign act of God to be used in this miraculous way that he had planned. She had grace bestowed upon her. She was not the bestower of grace. She was a recipient of God's grace. That's the point. Uh, so I say again, it was not because of Mary's merit, anything that she had done, but because of God's grace and sovereignty. Verse 42 says the same thing concerning Elizabeth. Elizabeth cried out with a loud voice and said, this is when Mary visited Elizabeth and Elizabeth saw her coming. Elizabeth said, blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. That word blessed is the same word translated favor. Here it means one who receives blessings or one who receives grace. Mary was not a dispenser or giver of grace then and she is not now. She was and is a recipient of God's grace, just like all of us. Amen? In other words, God in his matchless grace reached down into the life of this sinful woman and caused her to become an instrument to bring about the greatest event this world has and will ever see. She was favored by God. She was bestowed grace by God. But something else, this passage tells us that she submitted to the will of God in spite of personal sacrifice involved. Verses 31 through 38 tells us that she believed God. Verse 31 says, the angel speaking, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now notice this. How will this be, Mary asked the angels, angel, since I am a virgin? I want you to notice this very carefully. Mary is not questioning the validity or doubting the angel's statement as Zechariah did. She's not asking for proof that it was going to happen. She simply wanted to know how it was going to happen, the methodology of the event. Notice now what the angel said in response in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And friends, to me, this is one of the most awesome, fantastic passages of Scriptures anywhere in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. That's what Christmas is all about. 
This is a mystery. This is an awesome mystery. We must not lose sight of this. This should be our primary focus, the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God. Then goes on verse 36. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren in a sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. So you see, although this is so mysterious and wonderful to us as far as God is concerned, it's nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. Now notice Mary's amazing response. And the more I read and study these passages, the more I get goosebumps when I find out really what's going on from a human perspective. Verse 38, Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. The King James Version translated, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. And it is bond slave, not bond servant. That is the mistranslation. In fact, in most cases where you see the word servant in the New Testament, it should be translated slave. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. Look at the text. Be, be it done to me according to your word. Remember the human context now. She's living in this environment, people who believe the law of God and they obey it strictly. And she knows that all kinds of stigmas could be applied to her because of this. But yet she says, be it done to me according to your word. That's why I believe that this is one of the greatest acts of submission and worship to be found anywhere in the word of God. It has been done by Mary. Let's consider the human dimension a little bit more, the historical context. Let's get the human dimension here. Mary is a young Jewish woman engaged to be married. An angel comes up to her and tells her that she is to become pregnant during this period with the eyes of the entire community upon her, looking for signs of infidelity. Because remember now, this is during the spousal time. And those women in that in that community, they're looking at her every day to see if she's putting on weight, to see if she's getting sick, see what's happening all the time. She is in that environment. Her pregnancy would bring disgrace upon her and her family. To become pregnant in such a setting was not only a terrible disgrace, but it was also life-threatening. She could be stoned. And yet she says, let it be, so let it be. She was willing to submit to the will of God. So both her reputation and her life were at stake. But what does she do? She responds with these amazing words, Do what you will with me, Lord. I am your bond slave. But something else, she could be divorced. You see, this was an awful stigma to devout Jews because they were taught that God hates divorce. And for her to be divorced would be a terrible disgrace. So much so, in fact, that her situation of being pregnant while espoused was the only condition other than incest under which it was allowed by Scripture. In other words, the only two things I could understand in Scripture that God allows for divorce. One is incest. And the other here, of course, is while during the Jewish espousal time, which doesn't apply to us. And I believe the scriptures are clear on that. But in light of all of this, aware of all of this, how does Mary respond? 
she responds with absolute submission to the will of God. You remember when the angel appeared to Abraham and to Sarah, he said, this same time next year, I'll appear and Sarah shall have a son. What did Sarah do? She laughed. Mary did not laugh. Mary believed. Mary responded in faith to the word of God. Her mental anguish would be intense. Think now, she's only 16 years old, but all of these things going on in her mind. This reminds me of a situation I had some time ago. I got a call from a, a man, a young man that I'd known all my life. I, I mean all my life, because I knew when he was born. He called me and said, Alan, I need your help. He's married at this point. He says, I had an affair with a young woman. She is pregnant right now. But she has a strong religious background, and she does not believe in abortion. Her faith and her conscience would not allow her to have an abortion. But, this young man said, Alan, here's the problem. Not only does she not believe that she can bear the mental and emotional stress if she aborts, but neither does she have the courage to face her family and friends. If she does not have an abortion, what can I do? What can she do? How would you respond to that? Now, they probably, if they had gone to a worldly counselor, she'd say the easy way out, the best way is what? Have an abortion. Have an abortion. The mental anguish, though, that this young lady in this illustration was the face. She didn't see how she could do it at all. All right? I'll tell you the rest of the story some other time. So you come out and listen to me. Now, this young woman was under tremendous mental and emotional stress and pain. So was Mary. So was Mary. And that's why I'm saying to all of you who have any kind of family problems, when you go looking for help as a counselor, don't go to an unsaved counselor. Go to a Christian counselor. All right? That's just a little word for CCC. Now, Mary responded again, I said, with the words, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. She submitted unreservedly to the will of God because she realized how significant this event was. The birth of the Savior, the birth of the Messiah. And she was willing to give her life for it. She's willing to suffer for it. I trust that we would have that same kind of focus. Are we willing to give up things that we think we want to hold on to just so we could celebrate? Maybe it's just to have the idea of coming out to worship uh, during Christmas time. You would say, well, I was going here, I was going there, I was going to do this, I was going to do that. I would miss the worship service. Well, I say, consider again. If it's one time we should worship, really worship and give thanks to God, it's during Christmas time. Amen? Amen. Now, so Mary responded in full submission to God and really worshipped him by obedience the same way, um, just the opposite of what Zechariah did. But now let's look quickly at the human dimension as seen in Joseph's response. Now, remember, Mary's pregnancy was now evident. She was about four to six months. Remember, she had gone to stay with Elizabeth. She told her husband-to-be, 
I'm going away for four months, six months, I'm coming back. She comes back and she's pregnant. And you know what she tells him? An angel did it to me. Would you believe that? I want you to see here the human dimension here now. Because now this is the situation that this young man, Joseph, has to face. You look at the scripture in a moment, he was a righteous man. He was a God-fearing man. And now he was waiting for his bride, and she comes back, and she's pregnant. And then she tells him that God did it to her. Would you believe that, young fellas? I don't think too many of you believe that. You'd say she was crazy. But that's the human dimension. That's the situation there. In verse 18, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. As I said, Mary had gone to stay with her cousin Elizabeth, who was now expecting John. Mary probably stayed there for four months or so, three for sure, and she left after John was born. Joseph had not seen her all this time, and by now, of course, her pregnancy was evident to all, not only to the women, but including Joseph. The Bible tells us in verse 19, Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph was a man who lived according to the Mosaic law. We would say today he was living a good Christian life, keeping the word of God. He couldn't marry her simply to cover her apparent sin. Because like Mary, Joseph was also open to public ridicule and rejection. Notice, he is called Mary's husband. Why? Because as I mentioned, under Jewish law, they were already considered as being married, even though they had no physical union. And so two avenues were legally open to this righteous man. One, he could accuse her publicly before the elders and have her stoned. That was his first choice, according to the law. But he was also a kind man. Scripture says he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. So he had a dilemma here. So he had a second option, and this is the option he decided on. He could ask for a bill of divorcement in this case, which was legal under the Jewish law. In fact, this is what he had decided to do. He desired he had decided to have a quiet divorce. Now, I don't know exactly how that was going to happen, because most of the time when you have a Jewish divorce here, everybody knew about it because of the way it was done. Anyway, God intervened, though, as this thing was going through his mind. In verse 20, after he had decided that he would have a divorce, he says, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, like Mary, Joseph also believed God and submitted to the will of God in spite of all of the personal sacrifice that he knows he will have to face in his community. Verse 24 says, when Joseph wake up, woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. 
I want you to continue to think of the human dimension here. The entire community now knew that Mary was pregnant. Joseph knew that he had to live with and under the consequences of the perceived scandal that his wife was immoral and that she had a child by another man. But yet, in spite of this certain personal ridicule upon him, this stigma that will be his, after hearing the word of God through the angel, just like his wife, Mary, he submitted completely to the will of God. And that submission is an act of worship. That's what submission is. Submission is an act of worship. In fact, it is the essence of true worship. Surrendering oneself to one who is deemed worthy to receive the best that we are or what we have, regardless of the cost to us. That's worship. Abraham did it on the mount when he sacrificed his son. He put the knife in his hand and he was ready to plunge it into the heart of his son in complete obedience to the word of God. That was worship. In fact, when you read the you know, Old Testament, you'll find that the first time the word worship is used is in the context of Abraham offering his son Isaac. That was an act of worship. Full submission, costing something daily. That's what true worship is all about. So then, having gone through all of this and seeing the personal dimensions in the lives of Zacharias, of Mary and of Joseph, what should be the practical impact of the divine dimensions of Christmas upon you and upon me? I believe the answer is clear and unmistakable here. It should be one of submission to the will of God and worship. If you look at the whole story of the Christmas, you found the angels worship, the shepherds worship, Mary worship, Joseph worship, everybody who had contact with the baby Jesus worshipped. Worship. And I believe that should be our response this year. Worship. And so rather than planning and preparing all kinds of big parties, we should be planning right now how are we going to worship this year to show our submission to Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. What is the Spirit of God saying to you as we read and reflect upon the coming of Christ on that first Christmas? He's saying, I believe, that he wants submission to the will of God on the part of everyone who truly understands what Christmas is all about. He wants us to worship him. He wants us to be submissive the way Mary was submissive, the way Joseph was submissive, in spite of personal sacrifice, in spite of personal ridicule if necessary, even in spite of the prospect of living without a spouse. As it was here. Here is your bond slave, Mary said. Do unto me as you desire. Friends, that's the spirit of Christmas. We talk about the spirit of Christmas. That's the spirit of Christmas. That's the, es that's the essence of Christmas from a human perspective. Have you ever considered the fact that during this Christmas season, one of God's greatest desires for you and for me is one of commitment, of complete submission to him and of worship? to celebrate Christmas in the way that truly honors him? Have you thought about that? I want you to reflect upon that in light of these uh, stories that we've seen from the scripture and how they responded to the news that Christ is coming. Christ will be born. For us, we know that he has been born. 
We we know that he did not stay a baby, did not remain a baby. He grew into a perfect man, keeping the law of God perfectly. And he went to the cross as our sacrifice, as the one who took away our sins through his death on the cross. And right now, God wants our complete submission to his will to receive. The Bible says, this is the will of God that you believe on him. You believe on Jesus Christ. When you do that, that's an act of submission. It is an act of worship. Remember that when you receive Christ as your Savior, as your Savior, you're actually committing or doing an act of worship. Let's bow in a word of prayer just for a moment. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for these stories of how these individuals responded to the coming of Christ, your son, for the first time. We pray that we might respond the way Mary and Joseph responded, the way the shepherds responded, in an act of worship, and especially for those who have not yet received Christ by receiving him as personal Savior. Lord, may we really celebrate this Christmas in a way that honors and glorifies the triune God. May we worship him in spirit and in truth this coming Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.